tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 82nd episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And this evening, we're going to bring you an episode that would normally be one of our haunted true crimes. But because it is so long, we thought we would share it with all of you. Absolutely. We're going to the Lizzie Borden house. So not only are we going to be talking about the house itself, but we're also going to be talking about the Borden family, in particular Lizzie Borden, and the crime around that family. And at the end, we will reveal what we think. Did Lizzie Borden do it? If not, who do we think might have done it? So stick around for that. But before we get into that, please check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you would like to send us any feedback, where can they do that, Denise? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We do have another meetup coming up. We're going to our favorite city again, St. Augustine. We had a listener contact us and let us know she's going to be in town. And we said, well, twist our arms. Here we come. I know my arm's still hurting. (laughs) This is 2015, and we are going to do the Ripley's Ghost Train Adventure. So if you would like to join us for that, we do have it up on the events over at the website. We've got the event set up on Facebook. Or if you can't get to either one of those two locations to find out the details, you can always email us. And if you'd like to meet up with us, let us know. We're going to do dinner ahead of time. Then we will board the train and go around to a lot of haunted locations. And then we end up at the auditorium and go in there in the evening. We've done this once before. We really enjoyed it and had a maybe a possible experience there. And we did share that as our first episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. So it'll be fun to go there again. Absolutely. So join us on November 22nd. We do have some new members over at the Spooktacular crew we want to welcome. There's Robert. Hi, Robert. Paul. Hey, Paul. Rhonda. Hey, Rhonda. And Mara. Hi, Mara. And over at iTunes, we did get four more reviews that were five-star reviews. Fantastic. Krista DeLacy, this podcast is a wonderful balance of history, creepiness, and entertainment, well-researched and engaging. It's also fantastic to listen to a podcast hosted by a married lesbian couple. As a lesbian woman, it is amazing and so wonderful to start seeing representation of women like me coming out in more and more media sources. Well, thank you, Krista. That's very kind of you to say that. And I just would like to tack on to that. One of the neat things about podcasting, Denise, is that in the world of broadcast, it's been dominated for by men for many, many years, decades, I guess you could say. There's not a whole lot of women that have their own shows on the radio. I remember Dr. Laura Schlesinger had her own, but it's very, very rare. But when it comes and to Dr. Pod- Ruth... <laughs> I don't think Dr. Ruth had a radio show, did she? she? I don't know. She was on a lot of stuff. I don't know if she had her own, but she gave advice all the time. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like sex advice from a 70-year-old woman. Hey, experience. <laughs> but anyway, when it comes to the world of podcasting, women are really breaking out. And it's so neat to see that. Basically, the number one podcast that got a lot of people paying attention to podcasting is Serial. And that was hosted by Sarah Koenig, who is a woman. So that was very, very cool that that happened 
and there's a lot of great shows out there. So I'm just glad to see that women are doing so great. Gay women, that's pretty cool too. <laughs> yep, because it makes it very, very happy. That's right. <laughs> we also got one from RK May 6. If you enjoy history and love to get a little creeped out with a little more detail into how the paranormal plays a part, this is the podcast for you. The hostesses are great to listen to and have a wonderful dynamic between them. Thank you, RK. Thank you. Nikki from Maine and a bunch of numbers that I'm not going to read. Awesome podcast. Keeps me entertained while I fold towels all day at my job at Home Fashions. I love you, ladies. Great charisma, well-researched, spooky, and entertaining. Shout out from Down East, Wicked Cool. Hey, Wicked Cool. (laughs) That's like Northern talk. I have a Northern dictionary. And Maine, I would love to see. Not at this time of the year, but maybe sometime in the summer. It would be very cool to go up to Maine. Oh, yeah. I would love to take the camper up to the New England states. You got to go all the way to the very tippy top up north there. And speaking of which, since we've just (laughs) mentioned Maine, (laughs) you know, everybody tells us that they learn a lot from us, Denise. Well, we learn a lot from them, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. So again, on the Jersey Devil podcast, we were talking about how the New Englanders are a little bit crazy. Yes, since they had the Salem Witch Trials and then the Vampire Craze, and so then we're like, and now the Jersey Devil. That New Jersey is not a part of New England, nor is New York or Pennsylvania. So we're wondering, what are those considered? Is it just the East Coast, or are they something else? They're, they're their own thing, I don't know. That's what we'd like to know. But now we have been corrected. We know exactly who is in New England and who is not. Maine is one of those that's in New England. So Yes, yes, Maine is one of those, so we do want to get up to New England someday. I did explain it as Floridians. We're used to having a lot of New Yorkers and people from New Jersey come down here. And we tend to just lump people in that upper area of the North together when we talk about the driving and attitudes, we will stop doing that. (laughs) We need to quit calling it Jersey Week because it could be New York Week too. (laughs) Exactly. And tiny owls. I love owls, don't you? I absolutely adore owls. We do have an owl that lives in the orange grove near our house. And every so often at night, I'll hear it out there. And it's just spooky, creepy, and neat all at the same time. Love getting my fix of both history and the paranormal in one podcast. Diane and Denise are great hosts and make the show very enjoyable. Having the spectacular crew is an added bonus and really makes this podcast an interactive experience. Well, thank you so much for that, Tiny Owls. And that's the reason why we started the spectacular crew, because the fan page, nobody sees anything there, and it's not very interactive. People post to it, nobody ever sees it. So we wanted somewhere where people could post not only stuff that's of interest to the spectacular crew, but about themselves as well. You know, so if you've got right. a podcast or a website you want to share, we're not ogres and say, hey, don't post your stuff here. I mean, if you get spammy, we will, but. Yeah, but we like to learn about our listeners and we love doing meetups with them. So it's really fun when we actually get to meet them face to face. And kind of timely with the show, Denise, is that I just heard, I think it was yesterday or the day before, there is a Lizzie Borden movie that's going to be coming out and they have cast it already. Kristen Stewart and Chloe Savigny are going to be in it. I'm not sure who's playing what, but that should be very interesting. I did watch the one that they did on, I believe, Lifetime. Not only did they have the cable movie or TV movie, but uh, Christina Ritchie also did a series with it. I don't know if it's still on or not, but it was interesting. I enjoyed it. Shall we go to Massachusetts and Lizzie Borden's house? Absolutely. Which does happen to be in New England. And go get a lobster roll. Or lobster Lobster. roll. (laughs) Make sure you say that right, too. Lobster roll. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. 
for $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. The Waseca Wonder is the first documented case of spiritual possession in America, and it happened in the town of Waseca. It involved a young girl by the name of Laurence C. Venom, who was 13 years old. She and her family moved into a home where a girl named Mary Roth had lived 13 years before. Mary had been an ill child prone to unexplainable seizures. She would have periods of depression that would end up in these fits of seizures. She was sent to the hospital in Peoria, but no cure was found for her. She returned home and found that bleeding herself helped. Doctors brought her leeches and would apply them to her head. Mary actually began to keep the leeches as pets. After one bad spell, Mary ran into the backyard and sliced open her arm. Many men had to drag her back into the house and hold her down as she raved. Her strength was far more than what a hundred-pound girl should have. Mary was sent back to Peoria, where she died during a fit in 1865. After moving into the Roth house, Laurency started having fits that would leave her rigid for hours, and she would complain afterwards of feeling strange. She would contort and go into trances, claiming that she could see heaven. After 100 days, Mary Roth left the body of Laurency and the home. Later on, Laurency would visit the Roth family, and there are claims that she would let Mary enter her body when she visited. The idea that a dead girl could enter the body of another that is living is not only terrifying, but very odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History On this day, November 14th in 1851, Moby Dick by Herman Melville is published. Moby Dick had originally been published as The Whale in London, but when it came to America, it received the more fetching name of Moby Dick. The story is narrated by a sailor named Ishmael, and he details the quest of his captain who's named Ahab. Captain Ahab has an obsession for finding and killing a certain whale that is white in color. This whale not only destroyed his prior ship, but it injured him in such a way that his lower leg was severed. The work is very detailed in its descriptions of life at sea and the practice of whaling, and Melville drew from some of his own experience at sea. Although the novel is considered a masterpiece and one of the great American novels, it was a failure during Melville's time. When he died in 1891, Moby Dick was actually out of print. World War I would reawaken an interest in the novel, and it has gone on to great acclaim and is required reading in many schools. You're listening to History Goes Bump. We do want to thank our research assistant, Sharon Spungen, for helping us out with the Borden family history on this show. Yes, and she's not in New England. She's in Michigan. (laughs) Growing up, many of us have sung a rhyme about the crime attributed to Lizzie Borden that began, Lizzie Borden took an axe. Lizzie Borden took an axe. 
But did this young woman actually commit the crime for which she was accused and acquitted? What was going on in this home with this family that people actually thought it was possible? What happened to the Borden family is not in dispute, nor are the facts unclear. It was August 4th, 1892. Andrew Borden's body was found shortly before noon in his Fall River, Massachusetts parlor room. He had suffered many blows to the head, specifically to the face, with a blunt object. His wife, Abby, was found that same day in an upstairs bedroom with the back of her head bashed in. This violent crime remains unsolved, and perhaps that is why the spirits are at unrest in this home. Come with us as we explore the home, the family, the crime, and the hauntings connected to the Lizzie Borden house. Andrew Jackson Borden was born in 1822 in Massachusetts. He married Sarah Anthony Morse, and they had three daughters, Emma, Alice, and Lizzie. Lizzie was born the youngest of those three daughters, and only she and her sister Emma survived to adulthood. Their mother Sarah died when Lizzie was only two years old. Andrew was seen as a reclusive man, although highly successful. He was believed to have been extremely tight with his money, as he had started out in life with little means and never changed his spending habits even as his fortune grew. He would come to be one of the richest men in Fall River, Massachusetts. He was not very well liked, however, because he was always in a sour mood and lacked humor. Just two years after Sarah's death in 1865, Andrew married Abby Durfee Gray. She was considered a spinster by the community, and she was not very well off. Andrew needed help raising his two girls. The situation was ideal for both of them, and it was a mutually supportive marriage. The Lizzie Borden house was built in 1845 by Southard Miller for a man named Charles Trafton in Fall River, Massachusetts. It was originally meant to be a two-family home. In 1872, Andrew bought the large house for his family of four. The house had wall-to-wall carpeting on the first and second floors. Andrew remodeled to make the home more spacious by knocking out a wall on the first floor. Radiators provided central heating. There was a bathroom in the cellar and a pole chain toilet. The parlor was decorated with lace curtains. Despite the home being large, both Borden daughters felt the house was beneath their station in life. In 1889, the family hired Bridget Sullivan, an Irish immigrant, to help with the household chores. The home was large and comfortable, and from the outside, everything seemed well in the Borden home. But that was not the case. It was interesting. Andrew was very tight with his money. This was not necessarily a very nice part of town. So the girls thought that they should be living up on the hill where all the more ritzy homes were at. And the fact that there was a bathroom in the cellar with a pole chain toilet, this was not, wow, that's awesome. It was considered not state of the art. I mean, they should have had more of a flush toilet system going already at this point. We're going to get into places where he doesn't fix things when they break because it would cost money, whether it was the refrigerator or the furnace, anything of that nature. So he was very, very tight, would not spend money. I'm actually surprised that he did any kind of remodeling at all <laughs> to try to make the place more spacious. The home was robbed and cash and jewelry were taken during daylight hours. It's believed that Andrew and Abby considered Lizzie the prime suspect and insisted that all family doors were to be kept locked from this point forward. 
In a bizarre incident, Andrew took a hatchet and killed all of Lizzie's pet pigeons sometime in the late spring-summer of 1892. Emma left the home in the summer of 1892 after some huge family fight and went to stay with friends of the family. She was still there at the time of the murders of her father and stepmother. The morning of August 3rd in 1892, Abby went to the doctors complaining of severe illness that she and Andrew suffered the night before and allegedly made mention of her fear that the family was being poisoned. Interestingly, around this same time, Lizzie attempted to purchase poison to combat moths that were eating a fur coat she owned from the local drugstore. I've never heard of using poison to get moths out of your clothing, but hey, I guess. I guess she didn't like the smell of mothballs. They're kind of stinky, you know. Can I have some cyanide? I really, I'm going to kill the moths in my jacket, honest. (laughs) But she was told she would need a prescription for it. And if you can find a doctor who will give you a prescription for cyanide, more power to you. It's amazing what people get prescriptions for, just saying. (laughs) Rumors have survived to this day that Lizzie was not just a spinster living at home, but that she and her father had some kind of incestuous relationship. Now, let me just say that that is speculative and definitely rumor. I found no proof of it anywhere, but I have heard those tales. The family was active in the Central Congregational Church. Lizzie herself joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Christian Endeavor Society. Her activities with these types of organizations earned her the respect of two ministers, William Walter Jebb and Edwin A. Buck. She was a Sunday school teacher, and many considered her a hard worker. It would come as a shock that she would be arrested and tried for the events that would take place on August 4, 1892. Emma was with friends, but Uncle John Morse had come to visit, and he had stayed overnight. The maid Bridget was up at 6 a.m. to get a fire stoked and breakfast started. Andrew, Abby, and Uncle John came down an hour later. Everyone sat and ate for an hour, but Lizzie did not join them. She slept late. Uncle John left after breakfast, and Lizzie came down complaining that she felt ill. Bridget herself threw up later that morning, so this is the family continuing with this stomach illness. And let me just point out that, again, the refrigeration was not always tip-top in this home, so they might have just had food poisoning. Exactly. A little after 9 a.m., Andrew headed out for business, and Abby asked Bridget to wash the windows while she made up Uncle John's bed. Bridget got the outside of the windows done around 10.30 a.m. and headed inside to do the interior of the windows. Andrew Borden arrived home at this time. Bridget let him in, and Lizzie told him that Abby went to visit a sick neighbor. Andrew grabbed the key to his room and headed up the back stairs. You might be wondering why he needed a key. It would seem that the Bordens were in the habit of locking all the doors in the house all the time, as if they not only didn't trust the outside world, but each other as well. Lizzie went to heat the iron, and Andrew returned downstairs and sat on the sofa in the sitting room and began reading the newspaper. Bridget retired to her room, but was awakened by the shouts of Lizzie a little after she had drifted off to sleep. Lizzie was shouting that her father was dead. She sent Bridget off for the doctor. The doctor's house was across the street, but he was not there. Bridget returned with his wife, and several neighbors came as well. They all asked Lizzie where she'd been when her father was murdered. Keep in mind that the house was kept locked tight. Lizzie claimed she had gone to the barn to get an iron for fishing sinkers and had left the door unlocked. Then there were, of course, the question about where Abby was, and suddenly Lizzie had no idea. Then she threw out a comment about her father having an enemy and how the family had been poisoned by milk. Now, wait a minute. 
Abby was the one mentioning that she thought the family had some kind of poisoning, and there's not much doubt she suspected Lizzie. And how would Lizzie know it was the milk that was poisoned? And why throw that out there right after finding your father bludgeoned to death? Shouldn't she be a bit traumatized from the scene? The crime scene photos and autopsy photos are hard to look at, and we do have links to those for those of you who are interested in looking at that kind of stuff in the show notes today. The doctor finally arrives and observes that a sharp object was used to deliver 11 blows, not 40, to Andrew's head, making him unrecognizable. An eye was cut in half and his nose was gone. Blood was sprayed up to the ceiling, across the wall, the floor, and was still seeping from the wounds. A neighbor and Bridget went to see if Abby was upstairs after Lizzie mentioned that she thought she had heard Abby come home while she was out at the barn. So now Lizzie's story has gone from, I don't know where she has gone, to, I think she came home. The neighbor found Abby next to the bed in Uncle John's room, laying face down in a pool of blood. She'd been making the bed and seemed to have been struck by a sharp object from behind. The coroner later revealed that Abby had received more blows than Andrew. She had been struck 19 times. The blood was congealed, meaning that she had been killed before Andrew, and more than likely at least an hour before, meaning it happened while Andrew was out and while she was supposedly at an alien neighbor's house, according to Lizzie. Now would be a good time to mention that the girls referred to Abby as Mrs. Borden because they disliked the woman. They never considered her a mother and fought often. This is more than likely why Emma was no longer living at the house. Whoever perpetrated this crime had a lot of anger towards these two victims. Yeah, that's the thing to keep in mind when you're talking about this is while it's not the 40 and 41 that the rhyme claims were the number of blows, that's still a lot of times to hit somebody. And it was believed that they were both dead with the first blow. So this is overkill. Yeah, it's like somebody just was did the first blow and then just went into a rage and just kept going and going and going and going. And then imagine the rage here, because now we have some time space here. We've got Abby's dying at least an hour, maybe two, before Andrew. So whoever had this kind of rage either calms down a little bit and then gets the rage going again, or they just have this rage going for that whole time. So it's very interesting. And the axe, while it was an easy weapon back at that time, and it was used more often than not, and that's why there were so many axe murderers supposedly wandering around the country. To me, it seems like it's kind of when you're stabbing people, that's more of an intimate crime than shooting because you still have to get close to the people. Well, and rage causes people to be stronger too, because swinging an axe isn't an easy task. That many blows is a lot of energy that's being expelled as well. So somebody has to be pretty worked up to do that. Now, where are the cops? It would seem they were away for their annual picnic. Only one officer was at the station. He ran to the house and saw that Andrew was dead and ran back to the station. So no one is watching the crime scene. As happened with the Velisca Axe murder, this scene was overrun by looky-loos. Any evidence was quickly destroyed. Based on Lizzie's comments about the milk, the medical examiner sent the milk and stomachs of both Abby and Andrew to Harvard for testing where no poison was found. Another autopsy was conducted after the funerals. The burials were prevented so this could be done. Both of the couple's heads were removed so the skulls could be studied. The skulls were later interred with the rest of the remains. And they did uh, take care of those skulls in such a way that everything was removed from them, so they were just the skulls. 
and they had them on display at the actual trial. So that's fun. <laughs> oh, geez. I would not want to be the jury at that trial. Yeah. Lizzie and Emma were the heirs to Andrew's small fortune, and suspicion fell to Lizzie. Bridget was brought in for questioning as well, but she was never charged. Lizzie was charged. The evidence was weak at best. No murder weapon was found. A hatchet that was found in the cellar had been cleaned and then purposely dirtied so that it could not be proven that it was used in the crime. Lizzie burned a dress, but she claimed there had been paint on it, and so that's why she destroyed it. Uh Uh-huh. There was nothing to go on other than the fact that Lizzie and Bridget were at the house at the time of the murder, and Lizzie was being evasive. But this isn't enough to convict anyone. The trial lasted 14 days, and the jury acquitted Lizzie. Although the case was circumstantial, it's hard not to believe that Lizzie perpetrated this crime. Her motive? Money would be a main factor as her father held on to it tightly, and Lizzie wanted to spend it. And Andrew had told people he was changing his will to make Abby sole heir and give nothing to his daughters. It was no secret that there were family issues as well. The killer would have had to have entered a locked home. The place was always locked, and even if it were unlocked because Bridget was outside cleaning the windows, would she not have seen someone come into the house? Wouldn't Lizzie have heard the person come in and at least heard something as Abby fell and was bludgeoned? Abby was a woman that weighed about 200 pounds, so that falling on an upstairs floor, you're going to hear it if Lizzie is inside of the house when this happened. Well, especially on a floor because it reverberates, because when I fell, you heard me go splat from pretty far away, too. I did, indeed. And that was solid concrete, and I'm not 200 pounds. No. So you're going to hear something. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, somebody going after somebody with an axe that many times, there's going to be, it's not a silent thing. Then the killer would have had to have waited at least an hour for Andrew to get home. This person would have had to have hoped that no one would find Abby in the meantime. Clearly, Lizzie had lied about Abby running off to a neighbor's house since Abby never left the house. And Lizzie said she knew Abby had left because she'd left a note, which was never found. Lizzie claimed that she had been in the loft of the barn looking for iron when the murder of her father occurred. The loft was thick with dust and no footprints were found. No one had been up there for some time. The only thing that brings some doubt is the question as to why Lizzie was not covered in blood, even if she'd changed dresses or, as some have theorized, killed in the nude. Was it possible that a stranger had committed the murders? And is there truth to the gossip that Andrew had an illegitimate son who was the axe wielder? We'll never know. Lizzie and Emma moved from the house five weeks after Lizzie was acquitted. They bought a large home up on the hill, which was in the posh part of town, and named the home Maplecroft. And Diane, you know what posh means, where that word came from, don't you? No. Okay, so back in the day when ships were, when most of the travel was by ships, they always wanted the travelers to be in the shade because we didn't have the conveniences that we have today. So in order to do that, when they left the port, they would want to be on the port side, and then coming home, they wanted to be on the starboard side. So it's Port, port side out, starboard home. Oh, that's, that's posh. posh. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So anyway, Lizzie never married, but this could be because she might have been gay. On the seedy side of things, Lizzie met a beautiful actress named Nance O'Neill in Boston, and it was rumored that they carried on a long affair. 
And then there are theories that Bridget and Lizzie were having an affair, and the discovery of this might have prompted the murders. Lizzie died on June 1st, 1927, at the age of 67. It was due to complications from gallbladder surgery. The Lizzie Borden house has passed through several hands over the years. Lizzie and her sister sold it in 1918, and it has served many purposes. The home has been a boarding house. A printing business was once located inside, as well as a toy shop. An insurance man lived in it as a home, and today it is a bed and breakfast that doubles as a museum. Tours are offered, and ghost cams have been installed for people to watch activity online. And why would there be ghost cams? Because this house is considered one of the most haunted homes in the country. And why wouldn't it be with an unsolved, heinous crime involved? Guests and employees of the bed and breakfast have all reported unexplained occurrences. A woman is heard softly weeping. The apparition of a woman in Victorian clothing is also seen. This spirit sometimes appears to be dusting furniture or straightening beds, and this is while people are still in the beds. The typical opening and closing of doors happens, and disembodied footsteps are heard in the hallways and on the stairs. Cold spots are felt throughout the house that seem to be more than just drafts. One visitor claims that he entered his room and found it in an orderly fashion. He turned his back to the bed as he unpacked, and when he turned around, he found the bed rumpled and indented as if a body were lying atop the bed. The pillow was indented as if a head were lying on it. The rooms at the bed and breakfast each have distinct names named after family members. One woman reported the following after her friend stayed in the Bridget room. I just spoke to my friend in Pennsylvania tonight who stayed years ago in the Bridget room. She told me she awoke in the middle of the night and she felt as if someone was sitting on the end of the bed. She evidently turned on the light and could see a depression where they were sitting. So here we have a similar experience. Paranormal investigators have researched the home for years, including ghost hunters and ghost adventurers. Many claim crazy activity in the basement. People have been pushed, scratched, and cameras set up for recording have been physically moved by an unseen entity. And I've seen some mediums who have gone in there and said that they've talked to Lizzie herself. So I'm not sure if Lizzie has returned to the scene of the crime or what that's about because she didn't die in that home. No, she didn't. So that's a little interesting factoid as well. It may not just be Abby and Andrew haunting the place. Andrew's uncle had lived on the same property earlier in a house next door, and his wife had tried to drown their children in the well, successfully killing two of the three, and then committed suicide by slicing her own throat with a straight razor. Is there an evil entity here that fed off the discourse in the family? Did it lead family members to kill each other? Just makes you wonder if the anger and all these issues were already there, and it just fed off of that stuff, or if it helped to put it there. Or was it kind of like a family curse, you know, just where you have an uncle who whose wife does this horrible act by killing her children and committing suicide, and then it's just kind of a general dysfunction and mental problems throughout the whole family. Yeah, so something a little strange about that Borden family. Absolutely. So are the spirits of the Bordens still living in their home in the afterlife? Is there an evil spirit on this property? Did Lizzie Borden kill Andrew and Abby? Is the Lizzie Borden house haunted? That is for you to decide. And it looks like it's a little bit of a pricey place to stay, but they have lots of rooms and it would be interesting to stay there. 
I'll stay in my camper and go visit, <laughs> but thank you. She's like, I'll do the day tour. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even mind doing like a, a night tour that talks about it, but spending the night, no thank you. <laughs> All right. So who do we think is responsible for this crime? There are several suspects. Of course, you've got Lizzie. Then you've got Bridget. Both of these women were apparently at the home during the crime, but heard nothing, saw nothing. You possibly have somebody who was so angry they couldn't even live in the house, which would give two other people cause to want to cover up for them as well, which would be Emma. How interesting that you would say that, Denise, because there are some theories out there that Emma had her alibi by living in a whole different town. But who's to say that she didn't come by the house, do the deed and then leave? Possible. Then we have this illegitimate son, supposedly. If that's a reality or not, but that's a name that you could put down as a suspect if he actually does exist. If you've got Andrew never saying, hey, this is my son, never giving him any money, we would have a lot of anger issues there. And then, of course, there's the possibility of a stranger. But I automatically mark that one off because this would have to be a psychopath that's very, very sneaky. First of all, they managed to get into the house without being seen or heard. They managed to kill Abby in a very angry, rageful way. Then they stick around until Andrew comes home. How did they know that Andrew would be coming home anytime soon? Well, and how did they know the whole lock and key system of that house? Because as we stated several times while we were talking, all of the doors were locked. Not just the front door, not just the door to the parlor. All of the doors in the houses had locks on them. There was no robbery that I read about anywhere. So what would be the, I mean, who goes into a home, bludgeons two people to death, and then just skips town? That's just either you're a complete psychopath, and usually they're not going to do that in a home that has two other people there. Why weren't they killed? And then you just skip out. And again, how would they know that Andrew was going to show up and they're waiting around for him? So to me, we cross the stranger off the list. That leaves Lizzie, Bridget, Emma, and the illegitimate son. Now, Lizzie and Bridget are both in the house. If you, you cannot convince me that these two women did not see something, hear something. Now, they didn't say something. Why? Were they both involved and protecting each other? Was Emma involved and they were protecting Emma? Were all three of them involved and protecting each other? None of them spoke about the crime after the fact. And later on, Lizzie and Emma did have a falling out because uh, Lizzie was carrying on her affair with the actress and... Emma didn't really like that, and I don't know, there could have been arguments about money. If we have an illegitimate son involved here somewhere, don't you think he'd show up at some point and be like, hey, where's my money? Since the girls inherited that there'd be some trouble with him, maybe he would try to kill them as well, because he would have no reason to like these girls. So I think we cross the illegitimate son off. Doesn't seem very likely to me. So now we have these three ladies, and what is what really gets me about this crime is the whole thing about the blood. It's not like we have showers that you just jump through the shower quick. Bridget is supposedly sleeping while Andrew's being murdered. She doesn't hear any of that, but she hears Lizzie hollering. Did Lizzie have enough time to change out of her dress and to clean herself up that there would be no blood on her? Because, I mean, there's going to be neighbors everywhere that don't see anything on her. So why don't we, I mean, this is not a bloodless act. Now, if you've killed the people with the first blow, blood is not going to be flowing like it normally would. But you're still, if you've got blood that's hit the ceiling and the walls, it's on you too. 
even if she was in the nude, as some people have suggested. You've still got to get that blood off of you. Yeah, out of your hair, out of every everywhere. Make sure it's not left in the sink or wherever you wash up. And then you've got to, where did you put the, the dress that you're going to burn later that has the blood on it? Where did you hide it that the cops didn't find it, that other people didn't find it? Did it get spirited away? Did Bridget take it when she ran for the doctor? Did she take that somewhere, the murder weapon somewhere? If Emma perpetrated the crime or was a part of it, did she take all the stuff with her and leave since nobody would know that she was in town? Well, and there has to be some some in the know going on because... Bridget supposedly was talking to Lizzie before Andrew was ever killed, before he got home. So she would have already been bloody by the first murder of of Mrs. Borden. Now, Bridget also claimed to be outside talking to another maid at another house, which might have happened while Abby was being killed. Did Lizzie know this? And so she would know that Bridget wouldn't hear what was going on. I mean, this is something that's happening in the morning with other people around. It's just, it's the most bizarre time to all of a sudden say, you know, I'm going to off my stepmother and my dad. It's just a weird time. Why wouldn't you do it at night or, you know, send Bridget off to the store or something? It's just weird. So what's your opinion? Do you think Lizzie did it? I personally am leaning more towards her sister. So you're going for Emma. Mm Mm-hmm. Very interesting, because, I mean, I read some people had said that, but it hadn't even occurred to me, and that did to you. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking, because she could be upstairs with the body while Lizzie diverts Bridget. If Bridget's not in on it, Lizzie wouldn't be have blood on her, because Emma would have the blood on her, and Bridget would have means to be around the house, so she would need somebody keeping her away from that, and then whatever, whenever it happened with the father, and then... Lizzie still wouldn't have blood, but Emma would, and she disappears with whatever needs to go away with her. And it would be a good reason why later on we'd have a falling out. Whenever you have criminals and things, I've always said, honor among thieves, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I am leaning that direction as well. I'm leaning to the point where I believe that Lizzie and Emma definitely were in on this together. I just don't know how Lizzie could have been the one handling the axe and there's just you you can't get rid of blood like that i mean it would be in your hair there's just no way i mean she would have appeared wet at some point and it's not like again you could just jump in the bathtub and or the shower quick well and with the crime scene being completely decimated by everybody all the looky-loos any any trace of emma leaving with anything would be gone And there would be so much time here that, you know, while Bridget's running around getting a doctor, if she was asleep, she was not feeling well. Maybe she did sleep through it. I'm definitely, it's definitely Lizzie and Emma. I'm thinking Bridget might have known a thing or two and maybe they had something over her. Maybe they were going to offer her some money. She eventually moved to Montana and died. Never wrote anything about it or said anything about it. So it's one of those great mysteries where we will never know because it's just... We don't have the evidence. The people who are involved are all dead now, so we'll never know. Well, it could be Lizzie had the brains and Emma had the anger. It could be that very well. Because who knows, with the burning of the dress, with the paint on it, and the other hatchet that had stuff could have been a diversion. And there's so much focus. We don't know how sick Lizzie was or like how... Because serial killers are absolutely brilliant. So she could have been the mastermind and then used her sister's anger to carry out the deed. Absolutely. Or convinced her sister, forced her sister. Who knows? But uh, definitely, 
I would say that Emma was the one who was wielding that axe because she's the only one who could get out of there with blood on her and at least hide somewhere until she could get cleaned up somehow. It really is the perfect crime because sitting in that courtroom, looking at the evidence that they had, there's no way that you could have convicted Lizzie. I see why she was acquitted because there just really was no evidence. You've got a neighbor saying, well, I saw her burning a dress and she said it had paint on it. Well, you don't know, did the dress have paint on it or blood? You can't prove it. So you have to go with what the eyewitness says and what Lizzie's claiming. And Lizzie did not testify because you don't have to in your own uh, hearing because you can't incriminate yourself. So she did speak at a deposition before the trial, but she did not speak during the trial. And so you didn't really get anything from her. So, our listeners, if you all want to email us and let us know what you think, we would love to share your comments and ideas on on the show or, you know, respond to you. So, it's when you have these crimes, it's always interesting to try to figure it out. This one doesn't have a handy little envelope at the end that they tell you who did it. <laughs> no, that's the thing that always stinks is there's not that ending, this is exactly what happened. But that's our opinions. As Denise said, either in the comments underneath the show on Facebook, or, you know, if you want to email us, we'd love to hear what your opinions are. Who do you think did it? And we do also want to give a little shout out to Valerie, who is the one that got us to do this show. We do have some of our older shows up on YouTube. When we first started doing the show, I would put them up over there to give us another outlet, but not very many people were viewing them or listening. And so I gave up because it takes forever to upload videos to YouTube. And it was just taking too much of my time. And so I'm like, you know, it's not really worth it. Well, now we're starting to get a lot more attention over on YouTube and we're getting a lot of comments. So thank you for those. Absolutely. And Valerie had listened. We had the Villisca Axe Murder House up there and she had listened to that. And she goes, oh, I'd love to hear you guys do Lizzie Borden. So I said, all right, we'll do it. So, so there that you was go. For you, Valerie. On our next show, we are going to do the Emily Morgan Hotel in San Antonio, Texas. And this was a suggestion from Jill. Yeah, thank you for the suggestion, Jill, and we're looking forward to going to Texas. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going to San Antonio for real one day. I've heard it's gorgeous, especially on the Riverwalk. Yes, sir. We'll be eating lunch on the Riverwalk. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers of this episode have been Levi Drescher, Dan Foytick, Janice Carlson, Stephen Pappas, Heather Williams, Dave and Ann Student, Amy Connor, Tanya Turner, Nicole Johnson, Leanna Sapien, Jade Lewis, April Rogers Crick, Laura Davis, Seth Crawford, Tracy Duhon, Josh Wood, and Barbara Metz-Goudreau. Thank you. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding society, one podcast at a time. Be sociable.
Drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.